these categories will change and some of them will go away and some of them won't. So um, the category, the way I kind of categorize this undeveloped photographer concept is um, in the area of confidence, um, being overwhelmed and direction or lack of direction. Um, so and let's look at confidence first. Um, in, the under, in the undeveloped photographer, um, this this is kind of a new thing for them for most of you know most of us and uh, as a result many of us are unsure about you know what what you're doing whether you're what direction you're going into those kind of things I'm going to expand on this and so um, as as you start in going through this endeavor you'll find a couple of, of things that you run into one is if you don't have the confidence, then you will tend to um, second guess your ability to shoot usable images. You're just nervous about it. You don't know, and if it's a technical issue or your creative aspect or whatever, and so because of that, you will tend to overshoot. So instead of just shooting, you know, a handful of images you shoot dozens and dozens and dozens the term is referred to as you know spray and pray and the idea is that if I shoot a thousand pictures eventually I'll get some good ones it didn't work for the uh, the chimpanzees trying to write the great novel but anyway um, so you tend to overshoot your and shoot and produce more images than than you need to now the problem with that of course is that it also makes more work for yourself because now you are sh spending days and hours editing and re-editing and working on your images to get them to a point where you feel they're quote-unquote good enough to be able to deliver to the client or to your friend or even if you're shooting for yourself by the way not this is not none of this has to do with whether you're doing this professionally or not this can, all of this can apply even if you're just doing this for a hobby so the lack of confidence is a problem where you tend to overshoot um, and produce way more images than you know what to do with it, which makes more work. The other thing is, the other attribute I've noticed is that um, you, that the undeveloped photographer will um, provide the client with a bunch of images. So instead of just giving them 10 or 20 or uh, 15 of the best images, They'll deliver a whole CD or whatever, 30, 40, 50 images, hoping the client will at least like 10 or 12 of them. And uh, it's, again, lack of confidence not knowing whether the client will like the work or not. The other thing that I've noticed is that if you are doing this for a living or trying to, that you will price your images based on the number of images. So... You tie those two together. Now, there's some reason to do that, and I'll we'll talk about that in a future show. But the idea is that you tend to think, oh, if I have to produce, I have to provide them with X number of images, or my they won't pay me the price that I'm asking. So it's not your price should not be based necessarily on the number of images. So anyway, just kind of reiterate. So lack of confidence. Um, causes you to overshoot, produce way too many images, which makes more work in editing, and then you tend to develop dozens and dozens and dozens of images for the client or whoever you're delivering them to, thinking that hopefully they'll like one of those. Um, so, The other um, topic is being overwhelmed. Now, this is a common problem we all have in all kinds, especially when it comes to technology, 
but um, the undeveloped photographer tends to be overwhelmed with the technology and you know I see it over and over again in these groups someone that's a new photographer will ask a basic question about shooting on manual or whatever and you know half a dozen or more people will post a link to a exposure triangle or they'll actually be more rude than that and they'll tell them to read the manual or whatever it may be and it's a little overwhelming and so I understand that but the one of the, this is why my teaching technique is very different and why I go against the grain of a lot of people that'll say oh you got to learn to shoot on manual right away I don't believe in that I don't believe a new photographer should learn to shoot on manual if you want to fine but my point is it's not a requirement um, and I won't go into too many detail here because we could spend a whole show on that. But the point is that um, if you're shooting on manual, then you're focused too much on the technology and not your subject, not the person you're working with, if you're photographing people. And so um, as a result, you get distracted and you miss, you don't get good images because you're now looking down what they call chimping, looking at the back of the camera and you know working on the technology and your settings are too bright too dark whatever and you're chasing your tail so to speak and so that distracts you and takes you away from being in the moment of work of being able to see and really be able to do what's necessary to take a great image which is composition lighting those types of things so anyway um um <laughs> yep so um so Ali um, says she's guilty, and I, I get it, Ali. I mean, we all are at some point or another. You know, um, it's a, it's it's something that we all have to struggle with, and it's okay. None of these things are bad, by the way. I'm not trying to, like I said, I'm not trying to chastise anybody or make this a you know a scarlet uh, letter or anything. It's just that these are the steps I think most of us go through when we're learning something new. And so, therefore, it's just, you know, I want you to be able to identify it and be able to overcome it and be able to work on it. So focusing on the technology is, is a problem. Um, a lot of times people think, and I, again, it's like, well, what lens do I need to buy? I need to buy a better lens. Should I, I mean, should I, one of the questions we have tonight is, should I go to full frame? You know, um, they're worried about super sharp images or low, they're, they're complaining about noise or they want lenses to give more blurry background. They think that's going to be the answer. The point of that is that that has very little to do with shooting an excellent image. Um, I could hand anybody a 100 megapixel camera, medium format camera, and that doesn't mean you're going to, you know, a $30,000 camera or more, and that doesn't mean you're going to be able to take better pictures. Pictures may be sharper, but they could be sharper images of your feet, for example, you know, so it doesn't matter. So it's not about the technology. Um, one of the things that, that you'll hear me say quite often is if you use were to buy this and use the same stove as Gordon Ramsay, would your meals come out the same as his or Wolfgang Puck or whoever, any famous chef? And the answer, of course, is no. Using the same gear as somebody else is not going to make a better picture. So... The point is that that technology is overwhelming to a lot of people when they're starting out. And that can cause, um, I think it causes you to um, stifle you and to actually hold you back. So anyway.
the other the, the last area I wanted to talk about, and this is something that came up today when I was having a discussion with somebody, reminded me about this and something I've often t- I talk about with new photographers, and that is lack of direction or direction in general. Um, you have to be you can't be a generalist for everything. You have to be known for something. Um, what I mean by that is um, you wouldn't go into a Chinese restaurant and then order Italian. If you're gonna go if you're looking for Italian food, you're gonna find an Italian restaurant. It's the same thing with a photography or any kind of I'm not saying you gotta be super specialty, but if you were looking, let's say an example would be if you were um, a magazine or you were a chef and you wanted to produce a cookbook, well you would probably look to find who is somebody that specializes in food photography. I'm on a roll here if you haven't noticed on this uh, food thing. Um, so it's a theme I've noticed going through all, a lot of my conversations and analogies. Um, so the, the thing is that you, you, know, you want to find somebody that's going to be a specialist in food photography. Um, so it, let's, let me give an example. Let's say you've got this, this, this thing right here. This is a, a really well-developed, it's expensive, um, it's platinum. And it's got the name on it. It's got a name on it. Now, if the name were to say Walmart on it, what would be the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, if instead, if you flip it over and says, oh, wait a minute, this is not Walmart. This is Tiffany's. Then what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The point is each of those are brands. Each of those have a, have a theme or a, a something that comes to mind when you think about it. So Walmart... I could say this is 18 karat gold, and you would probably say, oh, well, if it's a Walmart, it's probably gold-plated, and it you know, may not last, but it's probably a pretty good price. But if it's from Tiffany's, then you're going to assume it's probably solid 18 karat gold, and it's going to be expensive, and it's going to have certain attributes to go. It's probably going to be in a really nice box, except wrapped really well, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there, that's, the, that's the analogy I use, one of the analogies I use for looking at photography. If you're a photographer and you shoot everything, I, a lot of times I'll ask people, especially new photographers, uh, what does he like to photograph? And I get the same answer almost every time. I like to shoot everything. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, first of all. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not chastising you. I'm not telling you that's, okay, that's a problem. But if you're trying to be known for something, that won't work. Because you can't shoot everything. Now you may be able technically to shoot everything, but you got to be known for something. So, for example, a wedding. If you're a wet, you're going to hire a wedding photographer. You're going to look for a wedding photographer. You don't want to hire a food photographer that also shoots weddings. That's my point. That's why I'm probably beating this to death, but that's the idea. So you, the other thing you want to do, in la, in lack of direction, is you want to figure out who your ideal subject or client is. If you're if you like to photograph wildlife, or you know, then that's fine. Then focus on figuring out, you know, if you're a birder, that type of thing, you photograph on birds. The people that photograph birds know birds inside out. They know all about them. I've met many of them. They'll talk to me, tell me, oh, this bird is rare. They don't normally in this area, that kind of thing. Um, or um, if you're uh, looking for client work, then who's your ideal client? What's your ideal client look like? 
Um, are they, you know, do they, are they a family? Are they, uh, are, is it a commercial business? Are they, are you doing corporate headshots? Is it boudoir? What, what kind of work is it? And, and is that a specialty? So when people are looking for that kind of work, you want to be, oh, you need to go to, you know, you know, to Dusty because she's, man, she's amazing. She's a great food photographer, for example, because she just does amazing work in that area and really, really good. Now, let me kind of call me back up a second and let you know that I am, I'm in the same situation. Okay. So I'm an advertising photographer. That's, I photograph people primarily. That's my favorite subject to photograph is people. I love working with people. And I love photographing people, but I have been hired many times to do architectural work um, for a magazine. I've been hired many times to do product photography. Um, and guess what? No people in either one of those shots. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't do it. It doesn't mean I don't have the skills or the lighting technique or whatever. I can shoot just about anything, um, and, and know how to approach it. But that doesn't mean that's my specialty or that doesn't mean that that's the kind of stuff you're going to see on my website. So I may shoot that stuff, but it's not the kind of stuff that I promote because I want to get hired to photograph people. And so that's the kind of work I want to show. So anyway, hopefully that part helps you a little bit. So, you know, a lot of people think their website's the problem or Facebook or they got to figure out the algorithm to get known and seen. But let me give you a perspective on that. If you're just starting out, you don't want to be known or seen until you're developed. You want to develop your skill, your technique, your style before you get big, right? You don't want the big client coming to you and hire, wanting to hire you when you're just starting out because you're still learning, so use this time, if you're just starting out, to learn, to go through, and to improve your skills so that as you grow, you can get that information from, uh, so you can be ready when you get those big clients. And, um, so what would, what's Jessica's here? Jessica's asking or saying, um, Jessica's saying, right people would prefer a specialist rather than jack of all trades. Exactly. You know, I don't go to my, I don't go to the person to get my car fixed and say, oh, by the way, um, I don't know, can you put in a scar stereo? Maybe that's not a good analogy, but you know, I go to them because they're, they work on cars and they do a great job, but I wouldn't go to them for something else, you know, bagels or whatever, keep on the food theme, of course. Um, so anyway, um, so hopefully that helps in, in that regard and you understand. So again, let me just kind of reiterate, we're talking about, um, confidence is something you want to you know help develop and i can help you with that that's one area that the undeveloped photographer has a problem with you're probably overwhelmed or maybe just you know it's too much you don't really kind of know where to start and technically a specific mainly that's where i see that in the cameras and lenses and aperture and shutter speed and all that and the third thing is the direction what's the direction of your of your skills or your, your photography that you want to take in general. And if you're doing this as a business, then what's the direction you want to go? And I'd say the big, the biggest question to you ask yourself there, if you're doing this is what's your ideal tar subject or who's your ideal client? Think about that and try to develop that, who that, so you know where you're going. So anyway, I'm going to, you know, again, I don't mean to, I don't hope nobody gets discouraged. I want you guys to know this. The point of doing this is to help you 
and encourage you, help identify where maybe some of your weaknesses are, kind of put them in a category and some things we can talk about and work on in other previous episodes, or you can reach out to me directly. But we, again, we all start at zero. Nobody, myself included. Um, and so it's just the, the process that we have to go through to get better at anything, really. So anyway, I hope that was helpful and um, at least gave you a little bit of um, insight into maybe how you can, um, you know, start to improve your, your photography and uh, some things to work on. So, all right, let's get to the questions here. I didn't mean to take this much time, but it was, um, I did think it was important to um, cover this. Okay, let's go to the first question um, is uh, from Mina. And Mina says, can you blur, can you make the blurry, the background blurry in Lightroom? Well, of course you can. Um, now, what do you want to? That's all. So as usual, you know, I can't give a straight yes or no answer, right? Because I feel I want you to know why I'm giving you the answer I'm giving you. And so you have understand information to be able to solve a problem, not just be able to get a checkbox. So you can blur a background in um, Lightroom. And uh, you typically, I would use a brush. And I would use the, I'd create a new brush. And I would use the Gaussian, the blur or the, the sharpening tool, and I would turn it all the way to the left, or not as much as you think you need to. Nice thing about Lightroom is it's non-destructive, meaning you can make an adjustment in it, and then go back, and if it's too much, you can you can make it, you can adjust it uh, less or more. The other thing you can try is a second brush or another layer, not really a layer the way they do in Lightroom, is uh, try the clarity and turn the clarity to the left. Clarity will typically sharpen it or make it, you know, punchier if you turn it to the right. But if you back off a little bit on the, to the left, you'll find it'll soften it up. Sometimes I'll use it on skin um, where I can turn it just a little bit to the left uh, uh, of zero and then take that brush and ma uh, paint the skin with it. And then it'll soften it up a little bit. That's uh, So that's one way. So, yes, you can do it. The other thing I would say is that you know, you got to be careful because um, it's, it's, I don't know, I, I find it's very difficult unless you really have really good technique and you're, and you know, and you're using Photoshop maybe or some other tool. It's, it's not easy to get a nice background that's blurry that looks realistic. And so you got to be really careful with it because the way a lens works is not, it doesn't just go and it's out of focus and that's it. It's gradual. And so to get that look with um, a, a software is a little tough. There's ways of doing it, but it's it's not easy to do. So anyway, um, so just be careful what you're, you know, there's techniques you can do that, by the way, without going into too much detail. Obviously, a, w a wider aperture would do that. But then the problem is, number one, may have too much light or number two you got shallow depth of field so if you're photographing a group of people you want that background out of focus then you get the person in the foreground front may be at focus person in the background may be out of focus so the other technique you can do if you don't have a lens that's got a super wide aperture back up and zoom in so the longer the focal length, the more that background is going to be out of focus. So a lot of people make the mistake that they have an 18 to 55 or a 70 to 300. 
they get close and they zoom, you know, they zoom out to a team so that they can get everybody in the group or whatever. But that means you're getting close. And what you want to do is the opposite. You want to back up and zoom in and you'll get a nicer, smoother, blurrier background. So, so blur or bokeh, as it's called, has also is not just based on aperture. It's also based on focal length and distance. How close you are to the subject will have something to do with that as well. Anyway. All right. Okay. So the other, um, Anna asked, my sister and I are going to take pictures in the snow. Snow? Is there snow out there anywhere? Oh, yeah. Uh, we got pelted here in the D.C. area pretty good. Um, could you recommend activities for candid or positioned pictures? I guess talking about posing pictures is the question um anna the there are a couple things you can do first of all let me give you a, a tip on the technique if you're not familiar with this most people don't realize that uh camera metering is are pretty dumb overall and the way they work is they are basically assuming everything is 18 percent gray so it it, it re, that's its reference is it starts with that and then it goes from there. So it averages everything out in the scene. If it sees black and it sees really bright highlights, it averages those together to get a, a, a normal exposure. But when you're photographing snow, the problem is it's all white. Most there's very little, you know, blacks in the scene. And so therefore the meter gets mess gets confused. And so it stops down a little bit and it turns that into gray. I know you've all seen this. And unfortunately, this is an example of where I see people give bad information. Like, oh, we'll just in post-processing, just bump it up and you can fix it that way. Well, you can, but then all the exposure comes up, not just the snow. So the exposure on the person is also going to be going to be uh, raised. So to get it, do it properly, you want to overexpose the picture um, by using the either exposure value, the aperture or the shutter speed or the ISO to raise the exposure to tell the camera that, hey, I know you think this is the right exposure, but I want you to overexpose it by a stop or two, depending on you have to look at the histogram or look at the image on the back to get the right exposure. But that's what you have to do. So as far as activities, it's the same for anything else, really. Um, when you're photographing people, I one of the techniques I like to do is I like to give them something to do with their hands. You know, something they can look at, they can mess with, a toy, a play, something. Snowball fight, obviously, is a great thing in the snow. Uh, because now, whatever you do, what you're trying to do if you're looking for candids is you don't want them looking into the camera. So when you're taking a, a, a portrait and you're having someone look into the camera, you're connecting with that individual on the other side. But if you're looking up or outside the frame then the camera is kind of a voyeur or just kind of observing the person. And so in this particular case, you don't want them looking into the camera necessarily. I mean, you can do some portraits like that, but you mentioned candid. And the, the, the uh, pose pictures could look into the camera. But give them something to do um, that would be natural that you would do in the snow. And, um, and you know, I think that'll work out. Just make them, you know... If you know, this is your sister, so you know them, so come up with something that would reflect their personality, and I think that'll make a big difference. All right. So Jimmy says, how do you watermark your photos? Well, this is a good one. 
Um, first of all, those of you that know me and have heard me talk about this, I'm not a big fan of watermarking. Um, so first of all, if you are going to watermark, that's fine. But and there are places to watermark, meaning there's times and places a watermark should appear. But the mistake I see a lot of new photographers make is they put this giant watermark that takes up, you know, this much of the frame over here. And it detracts from the photo. It could be a beautiful, beautiful scene. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I'm looking at this giant watermark. And it's probably some cursive writing. And it's, you know, really fancy. And I'm trying to read what it says. So all of a sudden, I'm taken out of the moment. I'm taken out of the photo. And I'm brought into this graphic. Or I'm looking at this picture, this graphic of who this person is. So that's the first thing. The second thing is... A watermark will not protect your image. If you're thinking, oh, I'm going to put this on there because so people don't use my image. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's just I find it very hilarious that people will watermark, you know, a a, a um, sunset. Same sunset I've seen a million times. There's nothing special about the sunset. I could see it a thousand more times. So watermarking a sunset is not going to be, I don't understand why you would do that. The third thing is, I believe it makes you look like an amateur, especially if you put it on a picture that's insignificant, like a sunset. Now, um, there are times, as I said, that it makes sense to watermark. So that would be branding, meaning if you're going to, if you're a wedding photographer, a lot of wedding photographers will put so something on there that people can recognize your work. It could be a graphic, it could be simple, it could be small. It doesn't have to be obtrusive. Um, I've seen one of the most clever things I've seen people do is they'll take their logo or their name and they'll kind of hide it in the photo. They'll, like, where's Waldo? Hide it in the rocks. or hide it. And so it's like you got to actually look for it. I think that's actually a creative and clever way of doing it. Um, but if you're going to do a watermark, there, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, there's some software that'll do it. I think you can do it on the phone and iPad, etc. I don't, I don't do editing on my images that way. Um, and but I'm sure you can do it for Mac and PC as well. Um, or Lightroom is what I recommend, and the way I use it, I, I did a workshop a couple weeks back, and I that was one of the things I demonstrated. Or if you are a member of the Photo Mentors, a shameless plug, a, a, um, a member of the Photo Mentor Facebook group, um, I, there's a, t a video in there right now. It'll be up for a couple weeks on how to watermark your images using Facebook. So there are plenty of ways to do it. I would, it's not a, technically it's not an issue or challenging. There's lots of products to do it. My, my point is really how you do it and, and what it looks like so that it doesn't detract from the work because let's face it, the photo is what you're really selling or marketing or using to get your name out there. And, um, so if you have this ugly watermark on there, it really doesn't help. Um, I don't think you're branding. So anyway, hopefully that helps a little bit there, uh, Jimmy. Um, so, okay. So beginner question. What's your opinion on Canon or Nikon pros or cons? All right, Hannah. Um, good question. Um, yes, that's the answer. Yes, no. Not, not, not sure. Um, there's a lot of great cameras out there. I mean, you can't go wrong. In fact, there are no bad cameras, just bad photographers. Plenty of those out there. 
Um, so I, I like the Canon and I like the Nikon. I, I shoot with Nikon myself. I have Panasonic and a couple other brands, but primarily for still work, I've shot Nikon for many, many years. So I'm more familiar with that, but the Canon products are excellent and their glass is excellent. Um, some of the cinema cameras I have use Canon lenses, so I know they're good quality lenses. The, the, here's my advice to you. If you're obviously you're looking to figure out what camera to buy. So my advice would be if if you're lucky enough or can drive within, you know, an hour or so and there's a local camera store, go and talk to them and call, call them, see what they have on display and see if they'll let you come in and, you know, if they have a demo, you can hold it. Ideal be nice if you could shoot with it. But what you're looking for is this. You want to know how the camera feels in your hand. You want to know what the menus are like. You want to know how you interact with the, the it's a tool, right? And so you want to know. So some some cameras like when I was switching from film to digital, I thought about going with Canon. Um but when I felt the Canon camera, it just didn't feel right in my can, in my hand. I didn't like the 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 ergonomics of it. And so for me it just didn't work. But that doesn't mean it won't work for you. So you want to look and see if the menus are intuitive to you, if it makes sense, how you would use it, you know, that type of thing. That will make a lot more difference to you than the technology will. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, 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 I agree, Jessica. So uh, Jessica says that um, she, has a, um, she has a Nikon now but started out with a Fuji and loved it. Fuji's are a great camera. They make great glass. They've been in business a long time. Um, um, my friend James, who's on here every once in a while, may be listening tonight. He hadn't jumped in with any of his wisdom yet, though. Um, but um, he's a he he's a maniac, of course, like me. He shoots. He's I think he has not to get off track, but he shoots Nikon, Fuji. I don't know if he's still shooting Olympus or not. Um, what else? Nikon, Fuji. He was shooting Olympus. I think he still has Olympus. And I thought it was one other brand he had. Now he's looking at Leica, which I'm trying to, which is um, telling him to invest in more glass. Although he's like me. He has more lenses than he possibly could ever need. Anyway, never happened. So the point is that there are, so there, there are no bad cameras. It's just bad. So what the, the, what the pros and cons are this. Here's a quick, first of all the first thing is you want to make sure it works for you you holds it feels comfortable because the grips are different some grips are deeper than others um and so you want to make it sure it works with your your grip and your hand the second thing is the menus you want to make sure the menus look intuitive to you um the third thing is then um you know, which, which one do you, you know, is, is more likely a lot of time. I've had many people that are friends that are bought one brand or another because their other friends had those cameras and they knew they were going to be out shooting together. And so they could use their lenses and borrow their lenses. Now, let me warn you about that. The problem is it's very expensive to do that. I have purchased more lenses from borrowing them from my friends. So, you know, it's like, oh man, I had this eighty-five one four is amazing lens. I got to buy this after I borrowed one, so that's that's the problem there. 
Um, but that's just a, a personal weakness, not necessarily one that you may share. Um, so anyway, so the main thing is you want to make sure they're great cameras. The one thing that I will mention, and this is a minor thing, actually, I'm always confused why Canon lenses only have a one-year warranty. And just about everybody else, um, Nikon has a five-year warranty. Uh, Tamron, I think, has a six-year warranty. Sigma has a four-year warranty. So I'm a little, that's kind of, you know, not that it's a big or a showstopper, but it is something to consider. Um, but, you know, you can always put a Sigma or a Tamron lens on a Canon or Nikon and uh, it wouldn't really matter. So anyway, well, I, I don't know if that helps or not, Hannah, but they're both great cameras. Get your hands on them, try them out. And um, the, the last thing I'll say, it depends on what you're going to shoot as well. So if you are, you know, wildlife or sports photographer, then one brand or another may have a product that's more suited in that category that's within your budget. Whereas if you're, you know, like I said, for example, I see a lot of wedding photographers shoot Canon, but I see more sports photographers shoot Nikon for some reason. I don't know why. So, all right. Okay. So Jimmy says, oh, we got this. I'm sorry. That's got this, Jimmy. Okay, so um, Julia says, what's the best lens for low-light photography so you don't need to boost up the ISO? Oh, here we go again. So much to avoid grainy images. I'm interested in shooting concert photography. So it's a good question, actually. Um, it's a difficult, you know, it's one, I, there's so many ways to answer this question. But first of all, let me just kind of give you some... We're looking, this is the worst situation or the nightmare for every photographer. Low light, moving subjects, okay, and, um, and changing lighting conditions. So, and you, your access may be limited as well, depending on how, you know, if you know the group or the band, or you're just going to start be doing concert photography for fun. So, that's the other problem to worry But anyway... So you need a lens. It's, you don't need a super, a super fast lens. It'd be nice if you had like a 1.8 or something. But here's the problem. Here's the issue with concert photography. Um, it's probably one of the few areas where I recommend you might want to shoot manual. And that's because the way it, what happens is that you're photographing a subject typically against a dark background, okay? There may be the lights in the background changing, which makes it even worse, but but you've got a, a subject in the foreground that's, that's brightly lit, right? A spotlight. So what happens is the camera sees that, the light meter, and it tries to um, either, it tries to expose for all this black area. And so it turns up the exposure. And what happens is you get a blown out, meaning overexposed subject. It's very similar to the analogies. If I know many of you have tried to photograph the moon and had the same problem. All of a sudden the moon's like just there's no detail. Well, that's because it's like a light bulb. You're trying to photograph a light bulb in, against a black background and the camera can't handle that. So there's a couple of ways to solve this problem. One is shoot on manual, but... Other, if you don't want to do that, another way is to use spot metering. So what happens is normally the metering is defaulted to averaging, and it's looking at the entire picture to determine the exposure. 
but spot metering in the camera says, okay, I want to narrow that area down. There's typically three modes. Averaging, a 10 degree or a, a, a little more narrower view of the metering, and it will, will ignore everything outside of that. And then typically a one degree spot or very, very small spot. So if you put the camera on one of those metering modes, either spot or, or the 10 degree or 10, then a smaller area, well, and then put that on the subject's face, it will ignore all that black area and it will only expose for the subject, which is what you care about, and that will solve the problem. The other, the other thing you can do is, and it takes a little more work, is use what's called the EV control. Every camera has a button on the top called EV for exposure value. And what that does, you push that button down and you rotate a wheel, depending on the camera how it works, and it will over or under expose the picture. It basically tells the light meter or the camera, I know you. this is what you think the exposure should be, but I want you to override that and under or overexpose it, depending on how you have it set up. So if it's overexposing, you can take that hold, push that down, and now it will basically put in a, a weighting or a factor to under to bring the exposure down than what it thinks it should be and you get a proper exposure. The only problem is you got to be careful because then it doesn't change back after every shot. So I've had people that bring me their camera and go, Lee, this thing is, it was working fine. I think it's broken. All my pictures are dark. And the first thing I look for is that EV setting. And I'll look up, yep, it's set on minus two. And so that means it's two stops underexposed. So every picture is going to be dark. So just that's something to watch out for. But those are a couple of ways to do it. Manual, um, um, the um, spot metering, or the EV value, change the EV setting, and that will also um, allow you to correct for... Um, so as far as grainy pictures, hey, it's a concert. It's art. There's nothing wrong with grainy pictures. Um, the only people that don't like grainy pictures are other photographers, but subjects, you know, have you ever looked at, look up the work of Jim Marshall? Jim Marshall had a big influence on me. I used to do a lot of concert photography, and Jim Marshall shot, you well, my genre of, of an age of music, you know, the, the, the Stones and the Beatles and Hendrix and uh, Janis Joplin and all these kind of people. Before they were so limited, they had access and, and had some amazing pictures, these really black and white grainy images backstage um, with them sitting on the couch and doing all kinds of crazy things. He had easy access to that because he built rapport with them. So that's the thing is... Um, you don't have that much anymore. In fact, there's a many of you don't know if you shoot concerts, if it's a big enough group, there's a a three three song limit. What that means is you can photograph, you can do photography for three songs, and that's it. No, no, then they'll ask you to leave because they feel that number one, it deter, it distracts the artist. But I think the real reason is number two, they get hot, sweaty, moving around, and, and the pictures aren't as flattering. So that's a whole. So it's an image thing. These guys control their image like never before. So anyway, I don't know if that answered your question or not, Julia. There's a little bit of background on shooting concert photography, and hopefully that helped. Um, okay. Okay. Um, Max says, uh, "Could you recommend a relatively inexpensive telephoto lens for wildlife?" Well. I can do that Mac, but you know, it's kind of you're at the other extreme here. You gotta remember now we're we're 
not to get too philosophical with you guys, but you know how I am. Um, photography is all about problem solving. It's all, it's all a compromise. It, no matter what you're doing, it's a compromise. So in, in Mac's situation, he wants a relatively inexpensive telephoto lens for wildlife. So that means it's going to be a longer lens. So that means it's going to be heavier. So if you're hiking or moving around, it's going to have a lot of weight to it. So that's one thing. People I've seen, a lot of people, oh, that thing's heavy. You know, the second problem is they're typically slower, meaning they have a they don't have a wide aperture. So if you look at the guys on the sidelines of the NFL, you'll see they have these big giant lenses, right? Those lenses are not that they're only probably at the most generally well some of them are 600 millimeter but most of the average lens is a 400 millimeter and you're like well wait a minute i can buy a 400 millimeter that's this big from tamron or whoever why why are these lenses so huge if they're only 400 millimeter people think that all oh, the guys they'll be able to photograph the guy's eyeball no that's not the reason the reason is it's a 2.8 lens it's a very fast lens it's also probably 12 grand but the point is that they do that so they can get that blurry background. You can throw that, you can isolate the subject, the player, from the background because you've got this busy crowd background. You don't want that, um, you know, distracting from this subject. So the point is that to get relatively inexpensive and telephoto, those are the, some of the compromises you have to make. So depending on the camera system you have, there are kind of a couple of products I recommend or that you look at. If you're a Nikon shooter, I would look at the 200 to 500 Nikon f5.6. Amazingly sharp lens. I'm just totally blown away by every time I see images from that thing. Um, if you're not a Nikon shooter, then I would look at, or even if you are a Nikon shooter, I would look at the uh, Tamron 150 to 600 or the Sigma 150 to 600. Both of those are very good lenses as well. Um, they're going to come in. The Nikon, as I said, comes in around $1,400, which a lot of people go, ooh, that's a lot of money. That's not a lot of money when you compare the focal lengths. That's very inexpensive and in what it used to cost for a 500-millimeter lens. Um, like I said, a 600-millimeter f4 lens is easily eight grand, probably, maybe more. Um, anyway, um, so... The, I, those are now you can get away with some of the other lenses like Tamron makes an 18 to 400, which is kind of a general purpose lens. Uh, I think it comes in at around $649. Um, so there are other some other options in there that you can get away with. A Nikon has a 70 to 300, etc. But I think what you're going to find with wildlife is you never, you rarely have enough focal length. Um, I, I've seen guys. In this area out here, there's a, a dam out here. I think it's called the Conalingua Dam, if I'm not mistaken. There's another place out here that a lot of people go out because it's very, uh, a lot of eagles are there. And they'll go out there with a 600 millimeter lens, and that's not long enough. It's just too short because to, you can't move. I mean, you can only get so close when you're photographing wildlife. It's not like you're photographing people. So, therefore, getting the most focal length is really going to be a, a key. Um, those, anyway, those are a couple of solutions you should look at. I think, uh, I would also, if you're not sure, recommend, I would recommend you rent them. They're usually easily rentable. They're not that expensive for a weekend. Give them a try. See what you think. So, all right. Um, okay, Sabrina, 
Um, I see so many people say the kit lenses are crap. Why should I buy a different lens to start learning? Well, they're not crap, okay? They're, they're not the best lenses, but let's look at it from the perspective of what and why you're getting what they are. So um, a kit lens is, an, is they're trying to give you the most they can for their money. I mean, everybody has a budget, right? People say, hey, I want to... I'm looking, I don't want to look into start off. I want to get a DSLR or mirrorless camera. I don't want to have a lot of money to spend. How do I get started? Well, you can't, nobody wants to start with a $3,000 camera. So to, one way to be able to do this is to get a, a crop sensor camera, meaning the sensor is just a little bit smaller than a full frame. It's typically 1.5 times smaller. And, um, that will reduce the cost of the lenses because the lenses can be a little bit smaller. They don't need to cover quite as big an area. And then also as the ISO performance of these cameras go up, then the you don't need quite as fast a, a lens. So you can get, instead of having a 1.8 or 2.8, you can get away with a 3.5, 5.6 lens um, to be able to do that. So um, there, there's a, there are compromises. Like I said before, everything's a compromise in photography and lenses are certainly the key there. So um, you you don't need an expensive lens when you're starting out. I, I have seen, um, I don't know, if Claudia is listening tonight, probably not because it's a different time zone she's in. She's in Romania. Claudia is an amazing photographer, in my opinion. She's brand new, relatively brand new, a couple years. And her work, I'm just constantly amazed. And I believe, I may get this wrong, she's shooting with a Nikon D5000, I think it is. It's not, it's, it's I think, a 12 or 16 megapixel, I think it's a 16 megapixel camera. Um, and a lot of her images are shot with something like a 55 to 200 or something. It's a kit lens. And they're stunning. They're just stunning pictures. Now, she has upgraded, I think, to a, a t um, macro lens because she likes doing some macro. But the point is, it's a good example of what you can do if you're creative, if you understand lighting and you understand photography. It's not about the gear. You can do just fine. The last thing I'll tell you about that is that people will, only other photographers are going to complain about, like I said, the grain or the, the noise or the focal length or whatever. Uh, the clients never, or the person that you're photographing for is rarely going to even say anything about that. They don't even notice it. So what makes a compelling picture is not, I mean, look, first of all, I'm all about having great glass. I tell, It's an amazing investment. Yes, you should invest in good glass if you can. But if you can't, that doesn't mean you can't be creative. So there's a lot of ways around it. If you learn how to use your tools then you don't need to have the most expensive lenses. So anyway, I could go on and on about that, but I don't want to do that. So anyway, Sabrina, you don't have to have, if you're just starting out, I don't care if you're using, learning to use with an iPhone. It's all about composition and emotion and conveying a story. That's what makes a compelling image, not the lenses, not the camera. When you see a, when you see an, a, an image do you go, oh, that's wonderful, or do you just go, you're, you're looking around at the picture. When you start looking at noise and things like that, 
that probably means the picture is not that that image is not that interesting. It's when the image is compelling, you're like, oh my god, that's fantastic. You totally forget about what it was shot with or lenses or any of that kind of stuff because the pic the image itself speaks to you. That's what makes a great photograph. All right. Um, let's see. Um, Ravender, I think that's got that right. Ravener, Ravi. It's probably Raviender. Anyway, I'll call you Ravi. I hope you don't mind, Ravi. Um, I started to learn photography in October with the D5000. Okay, should I upgrade to full frame yet? No, absolutely not. There's no reason to. A full frame camera is not going to make your images any better. If you're just starting out, focus on composition. I'm gonna, I need to finish the do the second part of the uh, the the uh, session I did a couple weeks ago called Learning to See Like an Artist. You should go back and look at that if you haven't watched it. But the second part of that will go into more about the language of photography and art. And art has an entire language of tools that we use to convey um, something we want to say about an image, whether it's lines or shapes or light or dark. Um, our color, all of those things convey something about the subject and what you're trying to say. So um, if you don't have that information, if you're not able to understand that, then it doesn't matter what camera you have. So learn the art of photography first and then worry about the technology. All right. Um, I'm doing close-up photography. What lens would you recommend for the Canon 60, 6D Mark II? Um, a macro lens is um, what I obviously recommend. That's probably what you're asking for. You want to um, look, go with either the um, 100 millimeter Canon lens, if you're depending on your budget. There's a version 1 and a version 2. The version 2 is a little sharper. Um, there is a Tamron 90 millimeter macro, which is really a nice image, or excuse me, a, um, a really a good lens. And then Sigma has a 105 macro, which is also nice. So um, what the reason though I recommend a f that focal length, because there's a lot of lenses you can buy that have quote unquote macro or close up capability but they don't give you the magnification that you need. Also, if the lens is too wide, meaning like you can get 40 millimeter macro lenses, you have to be too close to the subject, which means if you're doing product photography and you're using lighting, you're gonna be casting a shadow over the subject because you've gotta get in too close to get the magnification you want. So around a 105, that's what the Nikon is. That's right around what I recommend um, for doing most product photography. It's what I use. Okay, um, I think we've got just a couple of questions left. Um, what do you recommend between the Canon EOS 5D Mark IV or the EOS R? That's a tough one because they're both great cameras and um, one's a DSLR, one's mirrorless. So a lot of people, you post this question, they're going, oh, buy mirrorless, 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 mirrorless is a future. Mirrorless, mirrorless, mirrorless. Well, okay, there's some value in that, but... There's, I'm, I still like shooting DSLRs for some, to be honest with you, because I like photographing people, and I like to be able to see exactly what I'm seeing. When you look in the back of a mirrorless camera, you're, you're looking at a monitor, a TV screen, a little tiny TV screen. So you're looking at a representation of what the subject looks like. Whereas with a DSLR, 
I'm, I, can, I, I can look at either one and I'm seeing exactly what the person's eyes look like, for example. Um, and also the, yeah, the 5D Mark IV is a workhorse. That thing's great. It's been around a long time. The lenses, of course, all the lenses work with it, where the, the R is a mirrorless, and that uses the um, RF lenses, which is a different mount. So you can get an adapter, though, to use the existing lenses with the uh, mirrorless. But that's an investment, and then you got to figure out, now you basically have two systems. Um, so it just depends. I, I like the 5D Mark IV, probably my recommendation. But, Kara, without knowing what kind of photography you do the most of, it's not a fair question uh, for me to answer, give you a, a legitimate a answer to it. All right, uh, Jack's got the last question of the night, and that is, can someone tell me the difference between a 35mm and a 50mm prime lens? Yeah, one's got longer. One's 50, one's 35, Jack. No, just kidding. Um, getting, uh, getting, looking at getting one or the other for pictures of the family. So uh, I'm assuming you have a crop sensor camera. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to assume that. So here's the way it works. The, the focal lengths that they give you in a lens, a 35 or 50, is what it would look like on a, um, a full-frame camera, 35-millimeter sensor size. So a 50-millimeter is about what we see normally. That's a normal view of the pers of field of view. Um, but when you put it on a crop sensor camera, you have to take that 50 times 1.5, so you get roughly a 70-millimeter. Now... Here's the mistake most people make. It's not magnifying. You're not getting, you're not getting a, a 70 millimeter lens. What you're getting is the field of view. So it's kind of like the difference between looking at this and then taking a, a, a tube uh, from a, a toilet bowl, toilet paper, and looking through and go, "Wow, look, telephoto." No, all it's doing is narrowing your field of view. It's not magnifying anything. So that's the same thing that happens, meaning if it's this like this and you want to get to fill the whole frame, then you're going to have to move closer um, or further back, I should say, depending on how you, what, what lens you're using. So the problem with photographing people with a 35 millimeter is it's still a 35 millimeter. Even though the field of view is different, the characteristics of a 35 millimeter are different. And I like a longer lens. It's always better to photograph people with a longer lens. 70, 100 millimeter, 135. Even a, I've even used a 70 to 200. My, one of my favorite lenses is a 200 millimeter prime um, lens. Fixed, meaning no zoom. Um, it's just gorgeous. But it, and it's a beautiful portrait lens. But you've got to have the distance to, to use that. So... Um, Anyway, Jack, I would say go with the 50 is my suggestion um, and not the 35, but, you know, because that's, I think, going to be more flattering to um, to the people you're photographing. I should have had a chart ready. I could have shown you what that looks like. So, anyway. Um, again, uh, I think that's about it for tonight. If I want to remind you guys that... Um, we're doing again first Monday of the or first Friday of the month is uh, photo reviews. So if you want to um, submit some stuff for that, we'd love to have you. Always love looking at your work. And again, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, um, or whether you're shooting on an iPhone or a Hasselblad. You're welcome to submit some work. I'd love to take a look at it and uh, try and help you out and give you some pointers.
Um, also, if you are, um, again, if you're interested in uh, joining the Facebook group, it's a closed group. We are not interested. It's it's really a group for learning. It's not a group for people to show off or to tell them how much you know or to demean anybody else. It's a group to grow. And, 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 and as you can hear from the way I talk about helping new photographers, that's the, what the group is set up to do. So if you're interested, go to photomentor.tv slash join, and we would love to have you there. So, um, again, thank you very much just for joining me tonight. Appreciate it. hope it was uh, helpful to you. And I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Again, every Friday night at um, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific. So you guys have a, a great weekend. Thank you.